I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Managing the pandemic has required a delicate balance of expert guidance and government decision-making. While experts provide knowledge essential for deciding what we should do and how we should do it, politicians are ultimately accountable to the public for the policies, laws, and programs they adopt. So, what is the role of experts during a pandemic? On this episode of Open to Debate, I talk with David Fisman, Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Toronto's Dalla School of Public Health. Let's start by understanding the role of expertise in public health. I mean, how do you conceive of the role of experts, both in and out of government, when it comes to, to policymaking, either during an emergency or, or even just day to day? You know, it, it, it's almost like, I, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, back in the day, maybe you would have had a dilemma and you, you, so the, all, all the New Yorker cartoons with someone who's sort of going up the mountainside and talking to the, you know, to the person sitting outside the cave, you know, the, your oracle or whatever to give you wise advice. Um, I hope that doesn't come off as, as too pompous, but this is a weird time and you're dealing with a weird issue. And I think, you know, some of us have been thinking about pandemics and epidemics and vaccines and so forth for a very long time because it's our job. And now you have, you know, for the last year and a half, it's been a topic of general interest to the public and also to politicians and, you know, decision makers. So I think everybody's had to get up to, to speed in a hurry. But expertise, you know, famously, I, I don't know if it's true or not, there's the whole 10,000 hours thing. Um, and as a friend said to me early on, you know, so some of the stuff that was happening with, with the pandemic seemed pretty straightforward to myself and a couple of my colleagues. And, you know, his friend said, you know, you've had your 10,000 hours, mm. right? right? You know, I've been teaching this stuff and thinking about this stuff for quite a while. So in that context, uh, it, it's natural for people to seek you out, and particularly early in the pandemic, that did happen a lot because I think particularly decision makers felt like they were out of their depth and they wanted to you know reach out to someone who knows what this stuff is. Um, I think as as this has gone on, um, you, you know a, a bunch of different things have happened. W- one is that I think increasingly people feel comfortable with their views on how this all works. Whether or not I would regard those as correct, I think people have grown into their views. I look at someone like Roman Babber in Ontario, who you know has been sufficiently an outlier politically to get booted out of caucus. But I think, you know, I knew Roman. <laughs> I, I I met Roman early in the pandemic uh, mm-hmm. by phone. Um, I don't think he's you know he's a, a, a malign person. He's a nice guy. Uh, he clearly has some very strong beliefs about this pandemic that he's very comfortable with that I, you know, you know, that I think are, are problematic in terms of policy, but, you know, he's clearly comfortable with them and, and he's sort of grown into them where, you know, in April, 2020, maybe someone like that is, is talking to me and saying, well, what is this? How, how does this work? Over time, they've become increasingly confident that they know how this works. Hmm. I think you've also seen, you know, different voices and different structures kind of emerge over time. And I think as, as, as decision makers have had, you know, it's a little bit of an a la carte thing 
because there are enough kind of there's enough diversity of views from people who basically have the same letters behind their name as I have behind my name that you can pick and choose and decide who you know who, who's most simpatico with you and um, who's who, who who can you sort of walk walk forward and step with most easily and I think I've seen that a little bit in a, at a few different levels of government where cl- clearly there are folks who have sort of found simpatico experts that aren't gonna you know, push them outside their comfort zone that understand where they're coming from, from a policy point of view and so forth. So, so I think that this has evolved in, in, in all of those ways. There have also been sort of these, these shocks, some good, some bad along the way that have sort of, you know, sort of shaken things up a bit. I think Donald Trump's defeat, you know, his loss of the office of presidency was a, a shock, but a really good shock that, um, that, that, um, probably helped the, the global response to the pandemic. The variants have obviously been a negative shock. Um, and you sort of see a little bit of shuffling and a little bit of realignment. I mean, I'm, I'm sure if Justin Trudeau had lost the election, it was Prime, Prime Minister O'Toole now, you know, we, we would be taking a bit of a different tack. And I suspect mm. experts advising the federal government w- would also shift. So so I think, all, you know, all this stuff's going to evolve because it's 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 marathon at the end of the day, as you say, it is government that's, that's accountable or that's meant to be accountable Mm -hmm. and you're in an advisory role. So I, you know, I think in advisory role, you just sort of have to roll with it. And I mean, I've been on the inside and on the outside, you know, provincially, federally, um, I guess even internationally during this pandemic in terms of some, very limited interactions with WHO and some limited interactions with foreign governments. And, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes you're, you're part of the in crowd and sometimes you're, you know, you're, you're, you're outside the tent. Right. Um, And I think that's, you know, that's, I, I think that's probably true of any human interaction, especially in terms of, you know, um, of, of, of policy and how policy relates to experts in any field. One of the most interesting things to me has been that in Canada, we have this, what I think is for the most part, a hyper-competent, you know, class of bureaucrats. Um, there are some really amazing people working away at, for example, Public Health Agency of Canada, also Public Health Ontario, incidentally. I think Public Health Ontario is, is a, is a <laughs> I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's too out of turn to say it's 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 an incredibly dysfunctional organization and has been for a long time. I think I was employee number three there. I mean, it was dis- <laughs> it was dysfunctional when I left about a year after. <laughs> so I can't even imagine. But but for for all the the organization's dysfunctional, there are a lot of individuals there who are doing their jobs and doing outstanding work. And a lot of that stuff is out of view. The difficulty, of course, is is that. Um, you know, the, the, those folks are very much, um, um, I guess, uh, 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 subservient to, to assistant deputy ministers and politicians. So they can't always shine and they can't always speak their minds. And I think being a bit of an outsider can be helpful in that regard. Yeah, so that, that leads me to the question of what's the right balance between expert guidance and, and political accountability? And, and, you know, related to that, what are the limits of expertise when influencing politicians? Because 
Obviously, you know, experts sometimes disagree. We don't always agree on who the right experts are. Politicians have to take into account what the public wants because the public might decide, look, we understand the the risks, we understand the balance, but we want to go this way anyway. Uh, How do do you balance that out when you've got a sort of suite of of different experts and when you're facing the problem that you mentioned? There are so many people that politicians can choose from that sometimes they can sort of choose their own experts. I mean, I... I think I think there are a couple of things from as someone who's never been a politician or really much of a decision maker in any any role, uh, personal or public. Um, you know, I I guess I've been mostly involved from the expert side. And a couple of things about that. One is I think it's important to have a bit of a sense of humor about how much influence you can or cannot have. Hmm. Right at the end of the day, you're not deciding, so you can make a case. You know, talking to busy people, keep it short. Um, I think you can try and make a compelling argument. But at the end of the day, you have to have a bit of a sense of humor if people decide to go in a different way. Or, as I think was the experience less for me than for some other colleagues on the on the science table, of thinking that you had actually briefed the decision makers, got them to understand, understood where they were going, and then, you know, Two days later, they're going in a totally different direction. You don't know what happened. I mean, you have to sort of roll with that. That said, I mean, and I don't know, I suspect there are people who would disagree with this. I think I'm also a private citizen who happens to have expertise in infectious disease epidemiology. And for me, social media has been a bit of a boon because I don't think that I have any obligation to stay tight-lipped when I disagree with my political leaders. You know, we're supposed to be able to speak out in Canada. And um, what I find is some, I mean, you know, it's almost perverse because I think my social media stuff, the Twitter, my, you know, my, my, um, my Twitter account, I think is, is a source of a lot of annoyance to people. But in a sense, that's a beast that's been fed because what I find is, you know, you can't, you can't make the case on the inside or people aren't interested on the inside. And then you make the case on Twitter and all of a sudden they flip around. So in a sense, it's like, you know, it's like a bad toddler rewarding them for bad behavior. What mm-hmm. are they going to do it again? Um, so, so I, I think social media is a bit of a wild card in all of this because it, it's clear. I mean, I, I've, I don't know this. I've heard this about you know, the Ford government, and I'm sure it's true of many or most governments in North America that, you know, they're polling all the time and they know what the poll numbers look like. And, mm-hmm. and that is their politicians. You know, they need to get reelected to keep their jobs and that's motivating to them. So in as much as there's this, this other path you can take, I mean, I feel like I've had more success in influencing the conversation being a bit of a, you know, <laughs> you know, t- channeling my 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 inner inner uh inner uh uh you know james dean character <laughs> you know what you got um then 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 being part of these sort of these um uh groups and committees and you know tables so that's that's a bit of a strange perspective i'm not sure that I, I'm not sure how how widespread that is. I, I think I've I've lived a bit of a weird life in that way over the last two years. But you know, it's it's funny because I I think for me it's I've had a lot of minority views during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. 
where I've always been outvoted, you know, um, you, you know, without getting into details about science table or whatever, like it's always been clear. I think for anyone who had experience with emerging infectious diseases and with influenza, that kids were going to be important. And one realized very early on with this thing that, um, that it wasn't that kids didn't get infected. I mean, we've known since February 2020 that kids get infected, but they get infected asymptomatically, and so you miss them. Like, that's been very clear. That's all, That's been a very much minority view. Um, the views on aerosol have been minority views. I've been a minority view on the plausibility that this, you know, this whole thing represents a breach of biosecurity in a lab. So I've always been outvoted um, on things like that. And, and, and in that sense, it's very satisfying to be able to have a different platform to try and make your case. You mentioned government polling, and I think you know, that gets to, to part of the heart of the challenge, which is governments feel like they need to be responsive to the people, and yet when it suits them not to be, they're, they're not. And they, they seem to pivot back and forth between this idea that they need to be responsive to public opinion and and they need to lead it sometimes. And the fact is, you know, the governments have a leading role in forming public opinion and not just responding to it because, you know, this is part of, in my previous life when I was an academic, this was my research, people don't really walk around with fully formed, coherent ideologies in their head and, you know, opinions about everything. They're picking them up as they go from places and, and they're subject to change if there are, are people who can change them, including experts who have a, uh, who have a role in, in patterning, yeah. you know, political behavior and political judgments. And you talked about being in the minority of these positions, but, you know, maybe not forever. Right. It sounds to me like there's some movement, certainly on, you know, the, on the aerosol perspective, yeah. there seems to be some movement. It seems like that, you know, there are times when the minority position becomes the majority position at some point. Right. right? I mean, have you found that there's been a role for minority voices, minority opinion voices rather in, in genuinely changing minds during the pandemic? Have you seen movement on anything? What's, what's interesting is I think a lot of this stuff, your point about public polling and them sort of flipping back and forth is an interesting one. Um, Frank Graves, I don't, I don't know if you've oh, yes. chatted with Frank, but, but Frank has had data from ECOS for, for basically ever, um, showing that there's, there's, there, there's broad and deep public support for vaccine passports. And, and frankly, that, sorry, that bad, <laughs> frankly, Frank, um, his polling data all the way along has been, has sort of had a wisdom of crowds thing going on where I, as someone who feels, I feel like I understand epidemics and pandemics pretty well, just because it's my job and it's what I've done for a long time. And then you look at the ECOS public polling data and the average Canadian gets this, right? They, in terms of where we're at, at the, in the pandemic, are things bad? Are things good? Are we worried about what's coming in six months? You know, what's the long view? Like when I look at his polling data, I'm like, yeah, they, you know, the average person gets it. That doesn't mean that, you know, that, that, that some disinformed anti-vax person who's standing outside a hospital yelling gets it. But it's like the guessing, you know, how many blue jelly beans are there in the jar? Mm-hmm. You know, Right answer tends to be the average of everyone's wrong answers. And, and you see that in the polling data where the average Canadian really gets it. You know, the average perception 
and is is very very accurate. And I've I've been puzzled as to why politicians haven't sort of done well by doing good, because better control of COVID has I think generally rewarded um, the governments that have that have done that with with sort of high approval numbers. And there's some interesting exceptions to that. I mean, you look at Nova Scotia, which sort of knocked the ball out of the park for for a bit about a, a year, a year and a half in terms of their COVID. And, you know, Ian Rankin got, then got voted out as premier, which, which astounded me. Um, you Quebec, which had some early struggles. Quebec has never, unlike Alberta, where, where approvals very, very low, or Ontario, where approvals very, very low. Even when Quebec, and Quebec is doing much, much better now than they were initially on the pandemic. But even in the bad early days, there was a lot of approval for what was happening in Quebec, which is interesting. But in general, it sort of has seemed to me that, you know, you could do well by doing good. People are scared. Uh, they, 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 they want to be safe. They want to get back to normalcy. There are pretty clear kind of policy levers you can use to protect people and have them buy in and say, you know, you're on, you're on the team and I'm our leader and, you know, forward together um, that haven't been used for a lot of the pandemic and to the detriment of governments. And that's, you know, I'm not a political scientist. That's been puzzling to me. Like, why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you control this stuff better and have people feel safer and feel grateful to you? Mm-hmm. That's not made a ton of sense to me. Um, and now I've wandered off and forgotten the initial question. <laughs> well, it was it was about whether or not the, you've you've seen some movement in you know the minority position on anything oh, that, that might be a minority a majority position. So that's been fascinating, actually, because at this point, I I think what's happened is. On aerosol, to to you know to pick to pick one area where I think I think there is a, at this point broad popular understanding that that's how this disease spreads, and I think that popular understanding has really helped us control the pandemic better. I think what happened there is basically you were able to bring science to people who hadn't ever thought about this stuff before and had open minds. And it's so slap in the face, obvious at this point. It's like, oh, choir practices. You have super spreader events in choir practices. Right. You have super spreader events indoors, but not outdoors and so forth. You know, you can explain to people you use simple analogies like cigarette smoke and people have an open mind that, you know, people understand, oh, cigarette smoke's an aerosol. It's denser, close to the mouth of the smoker. And, you know, you, your natural impulse is to step away because... Um, you, you know, you see, you smell the smoke less strongly if you're a few feet away, and so forth. So you can use these analogies, and, and I think most intelligent, commonsensical people look at that and say, "Oh, so that explains, you know, that explains how this spreads." What's interesting in that regard is most of the resistance continues to come from, you know, <laughs> not just I'll put it in air quotes, the expert community in hospitals. Uh, which has fought back very hard at the idea that they've been basically feeding people nonsense throughout the pandemic in terms of how this spreads. And that's problematic because those are the folks who are, you know, on the science table and on um, the PIDAC, you know, Provincial Infectious Disease Advisory Committee. And those are the folks who are advising the WHO. And what do you do when your experts are the least informed people in the room and also have the most to lose from actually getting up to speed with science. It's a big problem. It's not a new problem. Um, <laughs> and cholera, we, we used to work a little bit on cholera. It was, it was I, I don't know, uh, you know, we're, 
very lucky to live in a society where cholera isn't really an issue, right? Because we have sewage treatment and water treatment. But it's 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 been a fascinating global threat, and it remains a, a, a major infectious disease in a, in a lot of parts of the world. And um, in the early 2000s, up till probably 2010, 2011, I did a fair bit of work on cholera. And um, what's interesting is um, the social context around cholera has really shifted over time. Um, but early on, very much as you see the medical establishment pushing back on the idea that uh, COVID is airborne now, you had a lot of pushback on the idea that cholera was an infectious disease, which had important, uh, or a communicable disease, something that could be transmitted person to person, which had important implications for control. And in fact, just as you see with aer aerosol now, the folks who, who are pushing back on aerosol have, have models that implicitly blame the people who get COVID for being insufficiently careful. You know, they touched their mask or they didn't wash their hands. You had the same thing with cholera, but because it was a, you know, prevalent disease in Victorian times, mm -hmm. um, a lot of this stuff got into morality. And there was this, this, this idea that the people who were susceptible to cholera, so the medical model is cholera spread by miasma, basically swamp <laughs> gas that floats over the city, right? And we know this because, you know, places that smell bad get cholera. So that's how we know. And, um, you know, the, the idea is, well, you know, it's swamp gas that floated over the city. Surely <clears throat> everyone should have got cholera and died, but they didn't. So then you have to tweak the model and say, yes, but it, it really only affects those who have um, poor moral constitutions, right? Who are, who are sinful, gluttonous. It, it, you know, it hits sex workers hard. It hits the poor hard. It's Victorian times, so it's sort of, you know, this idea that God rewards the righteous. So if you're poor, you must have done something bad. Um, so there's this whole sort of kind of kind of model that, that allows people to make sense of who's getting sick and where they're getting sick. Um, and in fact, it was physicians who were very big supporters of that. So the dominant medical model was cholera and miasma. That was pushed back on by the general public who said, no, it's not. This is obviously an infectious disease. It goes from person to person to person. And that was correct. And it was slap in the face obvious to the general public who are sort of belittled and derided in the med medical press as, as, you know, the hysterical public and the ignorant public and so forth. And then, you know, from the 1850s, 1860s onward, it becomes apparent that, oh, well, you know, the vast unwashed were actually right and, 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 the, and the doctors had it upside down. Um, I think you're. I think you're seeing a lot of, you know, we don't all have side whiskers, right? At, at this point, or I guess some people do, but um, frock coats and side whiskers and top hats. But, but, but the, you know, the dynamic is not is not dissimilar. Where you basically have the general public, I think, the engineering community, actual aerosol scientists who study aerosols for their jobs for 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 over a year now, saying, "Look, this is pretty." straightforward and obvious and you have folks who sort of sit in in power positions within public health and within academic medicine saying no no you silly people you're being uh, hysterical and foolish and we know exactly how this we don't we don't actually have any data to back up how we know this but we just know because we're very very experienced and wise and i mean that's been an incredibly dysfunctional dynamic 
And it's so bizarre. So, you know, and I look forward, I've had some conversations with, with legal people about, you know, is there a class action here that's going to uh, move forward in, in a couple of years? Because the science has been clear for a while, and yet you've still had these very um, outmoded, ineffective practices at play in hospitals where people have come to hospitals for care for other reasons, have acquired COVID there and died, you know, to the tune of nearly nothing. I think nearly a thousand people now in Ontario alone. Um, and is that, you know, is that negligence? You know, is, 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 is there liability there for the hospitals, even for the individual physicians? And I don't know what the answer to that question is, but it's really been an astounding and really disappointing thing to watch play out. I mean, cause I, you know, I've got peers and former mentors who are on the other side of this thing. And I, I, I couldn't have imagined a few years ago, that um, that there, there there would be such a so much daylight between us, so that's been that's been a very difficult thing. Are experts getting caught in in their commitment? I mean, is it a matter of saying is it a matter of just not being able to assess the situation, or is it a matter of sort of motivated reasoning where they said, "Look, we've taken this position, we've doubled down on it, we're pot committed, and so we're sticking by it." And that is a, is the conservatism coming from from a sort of personal psychological commitment or is it the fact that the institutionally they're not processing the data or is it a competence issue i mean i'm I, curious as to why they doubled down on it I, or I, triple I, down i don't know that it's competence and i i actually think i, I i'm actually going to say i think i think some of this stuff is pretty cynical mm-hmm. exactly because these aren't incompetent people these are highly intelligent people but a year and a half into the pandemic, you know, we had a prominent local infection control doc on the CBC this week talking about how important it is to open windows. And I can't remember whether whether HEPA filters were mentioned. HEPA filters were just uh, uh, mentioned by the, the, the guys who uh, chairs the Ontario Science Table, Peter Uni. But they never say aerosol. And I mean, that to me is some cynical doublespeak. Because if you're talking about ventilation, you're talking about something that's in the air, right? Mm-hmm. You're not talking about large droplets or contact. Nothing happens to contact when you open a window. What, what changes is, is, is what's in the air. Ditto HEPA, HEPA air cleaners. So you've got sort of this weird doublespeak and this, this delicate dance around the word aerosol and airborne, which makes me think that this is, this is, this is, actually uh so, something that's being said for you know to the public well, I, I don't want to use consciousness of, of guilt that seems a bit extreme but that people actually know they're wrong and they're trying in a sense to give good guidance without at the same time having to say you know i was wrong it's been aerosol the whole time so i think a lot of this is reluctance to step down uh, to, to to climb down you know you when you've been asserting that this is absolutely not aerosol for so long. I mean, what's the moment to pivot? My, my view is that the longer this goes on, the harder it is to climb down. In a sense, it sort of feeds, feeds on itself. But I do think, you know, there's some cost for some of these people and, and probably jumping off the droplet train earlier is probably going to be better for them in, in terms of, terms of how 
how history looks back on this stuff. And I know I'm, I'm sort of speaking in these very, you know, these epic grand terms, but this is a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the difference between losing a year and a half <laughs> of our lives and, you know, in, 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 in having our economy messed up, having our interactions with others messed up, and actually being able to put this thing to bed and move forward, especially with vaccines. I mean, this is the difference. And so to be playing funny games because, you know, you don't want to admit you were wrong because it's going to be inconvenient for your hospital to rearrange its protocols because N95 masks cost a dollar and surgical masks cost 10 cents. I mean, all of that stuff seen through the view of history is going to look very, very, very bad, in my opinion. And I think the earlier people climb down, the better. But there doesn't seem to be much appetite for that. Now, now this is <laughs> this has worked once before, right? Because we did have an inquiry after SARS-1, which found that that was airborne and that it should have been managed differently. Um, and there's even acknowledgement. I mean, uh, for example, Bonnie Henry, who's the... Uh, the CMOH out in BC has her name on a paper talking about how SARS-1 is an aerosol transmitted disease. Um, but but she's she's been very forceful in pushing back on things like masks, on the idea of aerosol transmission, and, uh, you know, has a lot of gravitas in the public health community. Um, so, so, so I, you know, I think in a sense, folks have really painted themselves into a corner um, but they, you know, they did kind of get away with this once before. So I suppose you look at this and think, well, you know, well, in, in six months or a year after this is over, no one's going to remember this anyway. I don't think that's the case, and I hope it's not the case, but I, I, I can see how that, that might be the calculus. Yeah, I mean, we, <clears throat> I've heard the, the, the post-SARS discussion come up a lot during the pandemic. And, well, you know, one of the of the frustrations I've heard from medical professionals and public health professionals, infectious disease professionals, was to say, well, we seem to have learned a lot, but done nothing. Done uh, you know, nothing. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, we sort of like, we knew we learned all these lessons and yet here we are right from stockpiles on down. And is there a sense from the expert community that, that in, in the sort of post analysis of these things we do come away with lessons and there is consensus but then something happens in public policy that there isn't any uptake yeah yeah and i think the problem is you have to actually to implement what you've learned you would actually have to do things outside of a crisis i think right. it's easier to actually do things when there's a crisis and when the crisis is over you know i, th I think um I think the urgency subsides, the resources go away. I mean, that's one of the paradoxes of public health um, is that when things are going badly, you get funding. And when things are going well, in other words, public health is working because public health's output is the non-occurrence of events. Right. Uh, that's when, I mean, the, the, what was it? A billion dollar cut to, to Toronto public health alone over yeah over a couple of years from the provincial government just before the pandemic broke out. I mean, cause things were going well and you know, money, money is going to flow now because, because we failed. Um, and then when things are going well again, things like, you know, the money will get cut again. And I think it's also important to remember, I mean, you, I think you're a political scientist. If I'm mm -hmm. not well not, by training anyway, <laughs> a former training, life. Yeah. Journalist, but, 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 you know, 
it's also important to, 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 to know that in, in these public health systems and in academia and universities, all these advisory bodies, there's a parallel political system, right? There yes, are yes, yes. Who sort of are very good at kind of rising up and, you know, being part of cabinet. And there are people who, you know, are backbenchers or get kicked out of caucus and, you know, to, to, to torture the metaphor, but it's, um, you know, I think it's very important, and I, without diving too much into the details, as someone who kind of came back to Ontario to be part of Public Health Ontario, I think Public Health Ontario was killed by politics. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, I, I don't think Public Health Ontario necessarily had a strong champion in Kathleen Wynne's government. Uh, but that said, I think the politics that killed Public Health Ontario came from the bureaucracy and from within Public Health Ontario itself. So, you know, you can, you can throw some money at a problem, but then, you know, I think human beings and systems have a way of kind of, you know, regressing to a bit of a mean. And I think what happened to Public Health Ontario is it became a lot like the health bureaucracy as a whole in Ontario in the 2000s, you know, uh-huh. dysfunctional. Uh, you had uh, kind of little fiefdoms. You had a lot of uh, kind of in-group, out-group stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and it was very, very hierarchical. And I think that killed innovation, chased away good people, um, sort of gave you a demoralized workforce. So you're, you're not really in a position to, I think Public Health Ontario, I think at one point they surveyed all the agencies in, in Ontario and of all the agencies, uh, uh, under the Ontario government, it, it had the lowest morale of all, like in the entire you know, bureaucracy, which is, which is quite an achievement. I mean, as I tell people, as, as few people come last as come first. So it's, it's, uh, it's quite an achievement, but in a, in a, you know, in a world where pandemics were a threat, you know, we're living through one now and the, the factors that created this pandemic aren't going away. Right. You, you want to be able to handle something like you want to actually have the ability to handle something like this if it surges up without creating whole new systems, you know, as some, as people have said, you know, trying to, trying to land the plane, you, you know, try to, try to build the plane while you fly it or, or whatever the, the, mm-hmm. the is, you know, you want something that's there and stable and well-funded and has a happy, competent workforce when times are quiet, because you're going to need it one time. About it. It's basically like a military, right? You actually want to have, you know, a group of people <laughs> who know how to use weapons and kill kill other people who, who mean to do you harm, even during peaceful times. And some might even argue that, that that helps contribute to the maintenance of peaceful times is having the expertise to, you know, to fight a war if you need one. And I think, I think public health is very much that way. You know, you have you have capacity, and you keep things quiet. And keeping things quiet doesn't mean that you're wasting money on public health. It means it's money well spent because you can do other stuff, and public health can be invisible in the background, and you don't have to worry about it. So I think I think that's a real challenge moving forward. It rem- it reminds me a little. I'm someone who gets chest infections often. I've got a weak lung and part so covid for me was particularly dangerous i was sort of had to be very very careful right at least till i was double vaccinated and then it was you know patio season (laughs) but i you know i remember i so i've spent a lot of time on antibiotics in my life i remember one of the big takeaways you're going to start to feel better 
don't stop taking don't the stop course. <laughs> you need to finish the whole thing, you know, and it seems like it's much like that as well. We're okay. Now we can throw away the rest of the antibiotics and you know, like, yeah. no, 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 yeah. you need to see this through all the way. And then you need to be, you know, you can't just start feeling better and call it a day. And I, and I think you're right. Like the incentives are such that, especially, you know, with quote unquote scarce resources, that when things seem okay, you want to re-divert them, right? And then, of course, that you're behind when when things go bad, as you mentioned, as they invariably do, right? right. I mean, that's we know that they're going to go bad. We don't know when, but we do know that they will. And yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know. Presumably, this is not just here to stay, but there's a risk that it in fact gets worse uh, if we're facing things like, you know, encroaching. Um, urbanization into you know environmental areas that are inhabited by other flora and fauna and oh, well, climate change and so exactly. on. Exactly, exactly. I mean, those are so so. You know, the the, the painful irony of this particular pandemic is you know we, we don't know and we we will. I mean, we'll probably maybe we'll know in a couple of years. I don't know if we'll ever know. But, but it's not unreasonable to think that this pandemic may have emerged as a result of pandemic preparedness research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A bit of a poignant I- irony. Um, and, and one of my big worries is if that does prove to be the case. And I do think it's, it's entirely possible that, you know, you... <laughs> As John Stewart said, you know, where, oh, so you say the, you know, the, the epidemic began right negative, the bat coronavirus began right next to the bat coronavirus lab, what are the odds, right? right? And, um, but, 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 you know, in all, in all seriousness, I mean, that, that, that's important work. It may be, it's, you know, stuff's been bubbling out about Wuhan Institute of Virology that they may have been doing stuff very quickly and at low biosafety level and in a foolish way. But that said, I think one of my big worries is that if that proves to be the case, people look at labs and say, oh, well, the lesson, lesson out of this is, you know, we just need better, better biosecurity. I do think we need better biosecurity, and I think we need to be more thoughtful about what happens in labs. Because if, even if this was a natural spillover event, exactly this can happen via gain-of-function research in a lab. And I mean, that was a, that was a group I was part of in, I think, 2014 we had something called the Cambridge De- Declaration that really pushed for more of a, for actually achieved transiently a moratorium on gain of function research where you make viruses more dangerous to see, you know, to see what, you know, what happens when you mutate them in different ways. That's a really dumb thing to do to deadly viruses because lab accidents do happen. So, so biosecurity is important and not doing dumb stuff in labs is important, but the, you know, the MO of EcoHealth, which is, you know, Wuhan Institute's American partner, EcoHealth Alliance has done a lot of really valuable work over the years showing people that, well, exactly as you say, vulnerability happens at the human-animal interface. I mean, they're notably quiet right now on the fact that the human-animal interface can occur in labs, but the human-animal interface also occurs with environmental degradation when we destroy rainforests, when we let cities grow and sprawl into, you know, into surrounding wilderness areas, when people trade in bushmeat, when we have industrial, you know, indu- basically industrialized agriculture, and we have animals kept under conditions where they'd never, you know, they'd never be able to survive mm-hmm. under conditions on a, you know, on a farm a hundred years ago. So you sort of got these basically very bizarre 
you know, growth environments for animals that I think confer a lot of risk to the animals themselves, to humans, and to the planet. So, so my, I I do worry that if this does prove to be a a lab event, that that'll take people's eye off the ball in terms of of natural natural spillover is a thing. It is, and it's an important thing to think about. And you know, it, it it's potentially. You know, I'm not going to say existential peril, but we we can have a much worse pandemic than this one. I mean, in a sense, this pandemic's hit the sweet spot in terms of disruptiveness because it's not quite virulent enough that people are terrified, but it is virulent enough that it can knock down our economy, knock down our healthcare system, and just keep going and going and going because we don't want to seal the deal because it's you know it's too much work to actually bring it under control. Right. Uh, so, you know, disruptiveness, it's hit the sweet spot, but we can have a much more virulent pandemic than this. I mean, you know, 1% infection fatality ratio, we can have a pandemic that has a 5 or 10% infection fatality ratio. Um, and, um, you know, people, people need, need to remember that. And at the same time, you know, and it's bizarre because you see scientists particularly kind of the biology community and eco-health and so forth, sort of <laughs> spending the last year, year and a half, arguing that this absolutely had to be um, a natural spillover event. Don't, don't pay any attention to the lab, nothing to see there. You know, biosecurity is also part of this. And to me, one of the big dilemmas coming out of this pandemic is how do you how do you fund and support good research that's going to keep us safer in the face of future threats while not having a proliferation of BSL-4 labs in every country and, you know, tons and tons of, of ecologists and virologists out gathering dangerous viruses from caves and bringing them back to these BSL-4 labs for study? Because I think if you have a proliferation of that, it, it, we could create a lot of jeopardy that way as well. So I think there's a lot of policy there's a lot of policy discussions to be had when this is over. Well, you know what that 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 brings us to time, and uh, I'm glad you ended on that note and not the um, it could be so much worse. <laughs> the ten percent note. Let's, I'm, I'm I'm putting that at the back of my head to process in six to eight weeks. And <laughs> and, I, and I suspect everyone else is too. But but you're absolutely right, and and. Uh, it is something we have to wrap our heads around, and I, I do worry a little bit that after this is all done, people will just say, "I don't want to think about that," right? Um, you know, because I we've just been through this. Let's not, and yet um, we don't really have much of a choice if we want to we want to keep ourselves safe, right? I mean, it's you know, it's like um, you, you know, we live in a little house that I love, and uh, there's a lot of things about my our house that I love. Um, I don't give much thought to the gutters. You know, yeah, right. On the roof. They're not really, you know, I don't have warm thoughts about the gutters by the roof of my house. But if I don't think about them and keep them clear, then the parts of my house that I like are going to get destroyed. Right. Red leaves and my, my roof starts leaking. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's part of being grown-ups in the world. We, we have a lot of challenges. Um, and, and, and you know, somebody needs to be doing kind of the care and maintenance stuff, even though it's non-sexy. The um, you know, to me, the acid test coming out of this is, is WHO has a list of I don't know seven or eight um, uh, pathogens for which 
uh, no vaccine exists and for which we probably want to have vaccines at least go through phase two trials and be sitting on shelves and ready for scale up. And those include things like Nipah virus, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, um, Rift Valley fever, you know, Marburg Ebola hemorrhagic fevers, you know, things that uh, people have heard of Ebola, they probably haven't heard of a lot of the other things, but they can do this too. And so to me, you know, that, 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 that's a little bit my acid test in terms of did we learn is, you know, are you, are you, you know, because at a billion dollars pop, let's say to bring a vaccine to market, that's chump change relative to what we've lost. And, you know, we've lost globally in days or probably hours when the pandemic's been at its worst. It's a good investment. Um, so, so that, that to me is a little bit of a, a thing to watch for is, is, is do we, um, do we start to kind of get ready for the next one of these things rather than just walk away and say, well, that's over. That was unpleasant. Good thing, good thing it'll never happen again. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. That brings us to the time. No, no, it's no, it's it's fantastic, and I, I think it's absolutely right. And so, but uh, first of all, my thanks to you, thanks for for your work, and thanks for joining me today. Oh, for sure, it's really nice to talk to you. And as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith and to Aaron Reynolds to make the show not just possible, but better than it would have been without them. And to everyone who's listening from wherever you may be listening, um, you hear that push your politicians not just this one but the next one too and we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks